Anyway, I'm going to be looking at uh, one of my favorite books in the Bible, Philippians. So if you want to turn to Philippians, uh, I'm going to focus on chapter 3 today. So if you want to turn there. And I'm going to work through this, but I'll just start off with the first couple of verses. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have, some, have reasons for such confidence. Now, I'm just getting my phone out here to start the timer, because I know what happens if it goes past 30 minutes. You'll start to fall asleep. So it started. No, he's, so he starts by saying, uh, it's no trouble to write the same things to you again. And what he's saying again is what he's already said in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Philippians, and that was to, to re rejoice. And it's a theme that runs through Philippians, even in chapter 4. And I'll just refer to a couple of scriptures. In chapter 1, verse 18, he says, What does it matter? The important thing that in every way, whether from false motives or, or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. And in chapter 2, verse 17, he says, But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. And it comes up in chapter 4, after chapter 3, which we'll be going through. In verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say it, rejoice. So this is a theme of Philippians. And I'm just going to focus on one aspect of that, which is chapter 3. So obviously rejoicing is important to Paul. And he's not talking about, look, just put a big grin in your face and, and walk around, you know, telling people, you know, Jesus loves you and just being kind of superficial. Um, Jesus does love you, but that, you get my point. It's not putting on a false emotion or acting religiously or even just rejoicing when things are going well in your life, thanking God for all the great things that he's done for you, but only when those great things are being done. If you think about the situations that Paul was in when he talked about rejoicing or told the Philippians to rejoice, they weren't kind of happy, clappy situations. You know, things weren't going well when he told them to rejoice. In fact, more often than not, when other people talk about it in the Bible as well, talk about rejoicing, it's during times of hardship. In fact, rejoicing, it's, it's not an emotional response. It's, it's not an emotion. It's, a, it's an activity. It's something that we choose to do not because everything is going well, but regardless of how life is going. And if, we, you know, if we're thinking in a rejoicing way, then that usually connects with our mouth and we talk more in a positive, rejoicing way. Yeah. And it's a, it's a clever choice. If we choose to re rejoice, then we're also choosing not to do something else. Now, if we're choosing to rejoice and thanking God for everything that he's given us, no matter how life is going, not just happy, smiley, but internally, uh, and not that that's not important, uh, by the way, and you, those, of you, those of you who don't know me might, might have gathered by now, I'm not the best at smiling. I try, I try my best, and this was proven scientifically last week. Shameful. <laughs> 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 You'll get it there. <laughs> As some of the kids at school went out with a shock of horror when they saw me laugh, um, Went to SciTech last week. I'm a teacher, by the way, for those of you who don't know me. I teach science. Went to SciTech, uh, which hopefully, do you know what SciTech is? Yeah. Yep. And I had this display, which was a robotic face, 
which had all the little muscles, you know, mechanical muscles and eyebrows, and you could look at it through a camera, and the robot would mimic what you were doing. So I was, I was standing in front of it going, and all the little muscles, little motors were going, the eyebrows were going up. But it also gave you a readout of your emotions, and it had four categories, happy, sad, angry, and something else I can't remember. And when it had my natural expression, it read out happy, 0%. Sad, 0%. The other one, whatever that was, 0%. Angry, 75. <laughs> and I don't know if I was, I don't know if I was, I wasn't feeling angry. I mean, I was with 120 kids, but I didn't feel angry. I was quite relaxed. And I'm thinking it's getting near the end of term. Maybe that's the thing. And it's nearly Christmas, and internally I'm rejoicing because I love Christmas, as Matt shared last week. But anyway, uh, that's what it registered. I went back th four or five times, but it said exactly the same thing. Zero, 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 75. Not 100% angry, 75%. <laughs> anyway, so it doesn't look like I'm rejoicing. Scientific proof, I'm doing my best. <laughs> anyway, if we're, if we're real rejoicing and thankful for God, the life he's given us, then we won't be doing the, the something else that I said. And the something else is obviously related to not rejoicing, and basically sin, whether it's whinging, grumbling, complaining, criticizing, being resentful, or just anything, anything that just shows a lack of gratitude to God. And if you think about it, we can't do both at the same time. We can't be rejoicing and doing that stuff. It's mutually exclusive. And this mutual exclusivity is, is good for us. And if, and if we're proactive and we focus on rejoicing God, being positive, being grateful, we're at the same time, we're guarding our hearts. And that's exactly what Paul says. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write these things. And it's a safeguard. It's a safeguard for you. you now, he understands how God has wired us. You know, the best defense is to go on the offense. I'm trying not to say it with an American accent or sound like Sam. Choosing to go on the offensive by rejoicing is the best defense from the things that make us turn away from God. Even when, in fact, especially when uh, times are tough, and have you noticed that uh, times are always tough? You know, if we don't decide how to think, how to talk, then our default setting is going to be, you know, we're going to act in some way. So if we're not making that decision, then Satan will make the decision for us. And we'll get a neg negative, ungrateful, and self-focused. And it's also a safeguard for our faith in general, you know, for the fear, doubt, double-mindedness that creeps into our lives. Yeah. So Paul starts off by, in Philippians 3, describing this, attitude of rejoicing as a safeguard against many things. But I'm going to talk about specifically in the context of Philippians 3, what Paul goes on to talk about, actually. I mean, it's a safeguard against many things, but obviously in the context of the scripture, he's going to talk about people who potentially take away their joy. It says in verse 2, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. So he's talking about certain people here. And you might be thinking at this point, you know, come on, Paul, that's a bit strong, you know, being a bit judgmental. And I think he is making a judgment call here. Maybe dogs, evildoers, mutilators. And uh, you probably know who he's talking about in this context. Um, a group of people um, referred to as Judaizers. And Judaizers were Jewish or gentle, Gentile converts to Christianity who claimed to believe in Jesus, but also wanted to keep some of the Old Testament stuff and obviously with mutilators comes up, so obviously they wanted to keep circumcision. And in order to be saved, a kind of mix and match Christianity. And they were really a real threat to the early church. 
And apparently they didn't establish their own congregations, but rather tried to get into existing congregations and influence people. And Paul talks about them in other parts, I won't go there, in Galatians and other books in the Bible as well. And he talks about them in quite harsh terms because they were attacking the very heart of the gospel, you know, the gospel of salvation. And what they were advocating might have seemed similar to the gospel, but similarity, you know, obviously isn't enough. And it was a salvation issue, and he was, wasn't sentimental. And he didn't say, well, you know, they love God. They want to keep some of the old stuff in, but that's fine. Uh, he didn't miss his words. They were false teachers, and when it came to protecting the flock, and particularly protecting the salvation of the flock, Paul was straightforward. And in the next verse, he uses their sort of terminology by saying in verse 3, for it is we who are the circumcision. Obviously not implying you need to be circumcised, but using their way of thinking. And the we he's referring to, obviously Paul, the Philippians, us, of course, because it goes right through history, and anyone else who chooses to follow the true gospel are the true circumcision. And he says the true circumcision serve God by his spirit, as opposed to anything else. Now, I'm sure these guys, the Judaizers, claimed to serve God by his spirit. They did claim to worship Jesus. But by the same logic, even if they did it still doesn't make him a true circumcision. Anyway, he wanted, to, he wanted the Philippians to be really confident, really sure, really certain in what they believed. And these guys must have put up a persuasive argument, if you think about it. Um, circumcision, apart from anything else, was ingrained in them. Um, God, no less, told them to, to do it. And all of a sudden, what God had told them to do became mutilation. And it's uh, obviously might not have quite that problem today, but it's analogous today. And same today, people can rob us of our faith and present persuasive arguments about what the truth of the gospel is. But obviously then, just as now, or now just as then, we need to be confident about what we believe, not tossed and turned by the waves, and be careful of false teaching. And that can come from different directions. I mean, obviously these days, you know, other religions, false teaching from other religions, you know, the, the popular belief um, that all roads lead to God, and as long as you believe something, you're going to be okay, that's fine. You're going to get to heaven. That's if heaven exists, of course, but as long as you believe something, that's nice. Or, even, or more analogous to what Paul's situation was, false doctrine under the banner of Christianity, as was the case with the Philippians. That's what they were getting presented with, a false doctrine, but was similar to what uh, they were what they believed and these days what could that be you know a false understanding of repentance so you don't need to get repent uh, pray Jesus into your heart to be saved you don't need to be baptized I mean all this stuff is presented to us um, all around us and we've got to be really certain what we understand what we believe what we know is the true gospel now even if they're they were committed and the Judaizers were committed uh, zeal hard work, enthusiasm, don't make up for false teaching. It's either the gospel that takes you to heaven, or it's not. And we can judge, just as Paul did. Next point. We move on to verse uh, 4, which just carries on a little bit from the previous verse. Though I, though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, 
As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was for my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my, righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith, sorry, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. So he starts off by saying he doesn't want to boast in the flesh, but in the very next verse he kind of does the opposite and starts boasting about you know, his achievements. And obviously he's not boasting, it's just like, you know, I wouldn't do this, but if I was going to boast about it, this is the stuff that I would talk about that sounds impressive. And he's really challenging anyone who thinks they can beat him in a comparison of kind of flesh-based uh, you know, titles and you know, awards. So he lists off his credentials that would have made any Jew at the time really envious. You know, he was, uh, had an incredible heritage, schooling, all his zealous exploits. I mean, he had it all. And he, he was circumcised on the eighth day, a full-blooded Israelite, uh, from a tribe of Benjamin, one of the two favored uh, sons of Jacob. And as far as the religious education, he was a Pharisee and lived according to their strict customs. And he wasn't just a casual member of the Pharisee club because he went about persecuting Christians. You know, he was really into it. And the summary of his religious credentials demonstrated that you know, if anybody had a right to a favored status, to have influence over his peers, it was Paul. And if the Philippians wanted to put someone on a pedestal, I mean, he was a guy that would deserve it. So why does he appear to show off his accomplishments? Well, it, I mean, it's partly to show if I can change and take on all this new stuff, and, you know, we don't need to get circumcised and all that kind of stuff anymore, but take on all this new stuff, so can you. That's just part of it. He also does it to illustrate just how much and how, what stuff that was important to him that he's willing to give up in exchange for being identified with Christ. I, I, I once met a, a priest, oh, years ago in London when I was evangelizing and just stopped this priest. He was a priest because he had the, the collar on. And it was actually a priest from a denomination that I grew up in. Try not to mention it to offend anyone, but the denomination I grew up in before I became an atheist for the next 17 years at the age of 12. And I asked him, look, um, I pointed out some things in the Bible. I said, look, you don't teach this. This is, you teach something different. You teach something contrary to what's in the Bible. And I really thought he would just come up with some theological argument and try and say, well, you've misinterpreted and all the rest of it. And what it should, but he didn't. He, he agreed. We don't. It does say that in the Bible, and we don't teach it. And I said, well, why do you follow it? He says, because the church tells me to. And it, it, it was scary. I mean, he, he wanted more to be identified with his church than to be identified with, with Jesus. I mean, that's, that, that was scary. And he was committed, obviously. You know, he committed his life to it. But, as I said, commitment isn't the only thing. You know, it's one thing to say that uh, we would give up everything to follow Christ, but it's quite another to actually do it. And this is what Paul did, I mean, clearly. I mean, this stuff was important to him. It defined him. You know, he was a big hitter in the, you know, his religious community. And he had prestige. This is what was, people looked up to him for. And by showing that he was willing to give it up, 
you know, he's emphasizing the value compared to that of knowing Christ. And he's quite clever how he explains this. He does this in a few stages. First, he says, you know, you want to know how committed I am to Christ? How important it is to me? You see all these things I've just lift, listed, all these things on my trophy wall or trophy cabinet? I'm willing to write them all off for the sake of Christ. And he uses the word, I consider them loss. And these are the things, obviously, that would have given Paul respect, honor, influence. And he's not just talking about beliefs. You know, he's talking about anything that gives us prestige in life, that contributes to us feeling good and, you know, keeps our egos intact. And, you know, we can ask ourselves, what are the things do we have on our, our trophy cabinet? What are the things that make us feel good? Um, so I had to, had to think about this for me. What would I have in my trophy? Probably not money. But uh, I'm quite smart. <laughs> I teach physics and chemistry, so I must be. And I'm only telling you this because I'm trying to do the same as Paul, which is not to boast about it, just to let you know. I've got a couple of degrees, three to be exact. Yep. Me and Diana Ross. Yep. <laughs> so, high IQ, I think. Well, last time I checked, and you know, means a lot to me, so I did check. Um, now, I'm broke, so I can't even pretend to boast about money, complain about it, and not rejoice, that's for sure. And career used to be, I'll come back to career a little bit later, but career used to be important to me, but less so since I came to Australia. Uh, materially, uh, well, I do have the best car in the church, um, which you all know. Trev, Trev has second best car in the church. <laughs> and if you haven't seen it, I'll take you for a drive. So you know, what does Paul mean when he says count these things as lost? You know, does, for me, does that mean I've you know, burned my degrees, you know, try and lower my IQ, sell my car? Uh, God forbid. Um, now, if we look at Paul's life, we, we, we never see him pretending that he wasn't an, infinite, an influential, well-connected Jew and also a Roman citizen as well. I mean, he was always bringing it up. And we regularly see him use his knowledge of the law and his Jewish heritage, but, and this is a big but, but when he does it, he does it for one reason only, to advance the gospel. And he would use any advantage that he had going for him to advance the gospel. So what does this, what does this mean for us? What does it mean for me? Um, the things I'm good at, the things, my, my, our accomplishments, you know, they might boost their ego, but that's not what we should use them for. Um, and we shouldn't find our identity in them. We shouldn't find, it shouldn't be what defines us. I mean, I shouldn't be defined by my car. And if you think about the change in attitude that comes when this happens, instead of things to cling on to, what they become instead is valuable resources to be used by God. These things don't cease to exist, but they just no longer define who you are. And it's a process, um, and Paul stresses it's a process. I won't read all of it from verse 12 onwards, but it's from verse 12. It says, not that I have already attained all of this or have already arrived at my goal. So, you know, he's still try to move forward with this. But it all begins by taking those things that we used to value and no longer finding our identity in, identity in them. And this is what Paul means by when he says taking these things and counting them as loss. It sounds like an impressive sacrifice, and it is, but it's just a beginning. He goes up a bit more in stage two of the talking about this. At the end of verse eight, he says he's willing to give up even more. He says, I consider everything a loss. Everything. 
It's not just his heritage, his accomplishments, that he's willing to count as a loss, but he's willing to give up all of it. And even in going back to verse uh, chapter 1 and verse 21, he says to live as Christ and to die as gain. So he's obviously even willing to give up his life. So, you know, this obviously includes, when he's talking about his stuff, this includes our stuff. And it's not just material stuff, it's you know, anything, jobs, pleasure, relationships, anything. Anything that starts to kind of define who we are or starts to get in the way of who we're supposed to be. And as a quote, and I don't know who it was from, and I'll say it slowly because it's convoluted, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And this is exactly the kind of value system that Paul's talking about in Philippians 3. But he steps up one more gear at the end of verse 8 to really drive the point home. When he says he counts all these things as loss, if you count them as loss, then you're still saying they're valuable. Because if you lose something and you count it as a loss, it must be something that had value to you. You wouldn't say that if it wasn't valuable. So up to this point, he's simply making the, making the point that he's deciding not to hold on to these valuable things, but to exchange these valuable things for Christ. But now he goes one step further, and in verse 8 he says, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. So he's no longer talking about them as being valuable. And it's quite a clever way he's built up this argument. And if you look at the, the only bit of Greek one Greek word. If you look at the word that is used for rubbish, it's kind of muted in the NIV version. It's a Greek word, skubalon, and it translates various forms, um, anything of worthless and detestable, scraps of garbage, table scraps, muck, even dung. So, you know, at best, Paul's making a comparison of the things we throw out. At worst, he's talking about the stuff that we flush down the toilet. You know, a steaming pile of scubalon. That's your, word to t- that's your word to take away today. I think it's actually referring to animal feces, but you know, we are animals, so I think it's a fair enough comparison. And you know, when we get rid of this stuff, do we care where it's gone? You know, when a bin man comes, are you sad? Um, uh, are, you, are you sad when you flush the toilet? Um, so in, instead of considering all this stuff as valuable, but worth the trade, Paul goes one step further and says that knowing Christ is so valuable that in comparison, this stuff is about as desirable as feces. Scubalon, that's the word for today. He devalues the things that the world says that we should treasure. And he shifts it from saying, you know, it's worth giving up everything, all this valuable stuff, to giving up all this worthless, valueless stuff. It's not a loss, what you said just a few words before. Now it's good riddance. Instead of finding his identity in these things, he throws them all in a dung heap. And we need to ask ourselves, how do we see this stuff in our lives? You know, when we compare, you know, a relationship with God and our, you know, goal of going to heaven, you know, is this stuff important to us? Is it what defines me? Is it what defines me on earth? And, you know, during my lifetime, it defined me. But when I get to heaven, you know, all those spiritual things, they'll define me then. I'll be ready for the changeover, but not right now. You know, if it's starting to get in the way, uh, if it's starting to define us, that's where we get our worth, uh, our worth from, 
then, it's, then it becomes a problem. Do we see it as rubbish? Goodness, if I, if I let go of some of this stuff, you know, what am I going to become without the things that you know, really make me feel like I'm some, something important? And you know, there's lots of things we could talk about. I'll just talk about one example, and what I mentioned before, um, careers and jobs. Um, has our job, or obviously our studies, if, if you're a student, become more important than our Christianity? You know, does, it define, does it define us? Is it where we spend more and more of our time? Is it where you know, the money that comes for us is becoming more and more important, more and more of a temptation? Does it keep us away from meetings of the, the body of the church? If you got offered a job that was in a place where there was no church, you might not get offered, but can you honestly say, no, I would no way I would, would I take it? And look, you know, there is a common sense balance, obviously. You know, being good at our jobs is important. God doesn't want us to be idle. He wants us to be successful at our jobs. He wants us to be, get job satisfaction and enjoy it. And uh, I get job satisfaction from my job up until about the last two days of term, which is Monday, Tuesday, where it's starting to slip. And also this helps with people who are studying the Bible with and coming along to church. I mean, they don't want to see that we're not productive members of society, but they also want to see that that's not the most important thing in our life. But if to do it well, to do it at all, is becoming the most important thing in your life, if it's getting in the way of your Christian life, then there's a problem. And look, for me, a career isn't the most important thing to me. When I came to Australia, I stepped down in seniority. I was head of department in, in UK and I wasn't really bothered about it. But recently, I applied for a job as a head of department in a school. And you know, I, even as not a head of department, I spend a ton of time at my job. And it's always something that I struggle with, feeling a bit guilty about the amount of time. I'm a teacher. It takes, many will tell you, it takes a lot of time. And if you want to do it half well, um, it takes a lot, of, a lot of time. So I don't deliberately try and you know, focus on it, but it does take, and I was really worried about applying for this job. What if I get it, and what if it takes up even more of my time? I was trying to convince myself that maybe I could do things in a way that would take up less time, but I didn't feel good about it. And I'm not saying I shouldn't have applied, but you know, I didn't get the job, and I don't know if that's because I did a bad interview or because God was protecting me. Either way, I'm fine with it, and I felt a sense of relief. But that's a big struggle for me, which I not deliberately try to do, but I'm always aware of how it's pulling on me, and making it worse is not something that I want to do. This is just one example, you know, it, and it goes for anything in our lives. As I said, relationships, hobbies, whatever. If it's defining you, if it's getting in the way, if it's scuba on, flush it. And uh, I'll finish where I started with the theme that runs through Philippians, and that's on rejoicing. And it's obviously mentioned at other times in the Bible. Um, if you do a search for it, you'll find that Peter and John also talk about it a lot. And as I said in the beginning, you know, instructions to rejoice uh, are often associated with hardship in the Bible, whether, it, whether it's John, Peter, or Paul. But I'll leave the, the, the last scripture, the last word to John, not Paul. And it's from Revelation 19.7. 19, and it reads, then I heard what sounded like a, a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Now this rejoicing, the rejoicing that we do now 
as I said in the beginning, is based on faith. It's a conscious choice. It's not an emotional response, and it's a safeguard against Satan. And it doesn't stop in heaven. John says there's going to be rejoicing in heaven. But it'll be a different kind of rejoicing, I think, anyway. Obviously, it won't be a safeguard against Satan, because Satan won't be there. And we won't need a safeguard. He won't have any influence over us. I don't think it'll be the result of a conscious decision based on faith, because the Bible says faith is being sure of what you hope for, certain of what you can't see. Well, you don't need hope for it anymore. You're there, and you can see it, so you plain don't need faith. So that's not why you're rejoicing. And also, unlike the rejoicing we do now, um, I said you know, what we've got to do now is not an emotional response. It's not even an emotion. But when we come face to face with Jesus, I think it will be different. I think it will be an emotional response. I think it will be something that just comes out of us when we see Jesus. And then, you know, hopefully we can see it now, but I'm sure we'll definitely see it at that point. You know, all the suffering, the sacrifice, won't matter anything. Yeah. And the stuff that seems so, so important to us now, when we're standing at that point, will seem like scubalon, um, rubbish, garbage, poop when we compare it to looking in directly into the eyes of Jesus, I think the rejoicing will be an emotional response, not something that we have to switch on to stop us doing anything else. And we'll now have a final song. <laughs>